Hey, everybody. I encourage you to read later today um, 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2 so that you read Hannah's song, which is really closely connected to Mary's song. And um, the series during my sabbatical this year in the nine weeks in the summer, uh, Lloyd and Vince and Mike and whoever are going to preach out of 1 Samuel. So it'll hopefully get you excited for that. Besides the obvious excitement of getting rid of me for a little while. Um, one of the things that Luke mentions twice is that, um, is that John is kicking in his mother's womb for joy. Right? I don't know if you've ever been around pregnant people in the annoying stage where they're kind of like just entering the third trimester and they can like show you the bulges, but they're not waddling yet. And moms are always just kind of like, look at the kick and I got the whatever, and there's the pushing and the— And, um, but Luke actually specifies, and Elizabeth specifies, that the minute that she and the baby hear Mary's voice, he like leaps for joy, right? Sometimes parents talk about like, when, oh yeah, when, when kid number two was in my stomach, he was playing soccer and he was jumping around and he was, right? My mom says stuff like that about me. And, um, and so John like leaps for joy. And then Elizabeth tells Mary that he leaped for joy. And when something is happening where like kids in utero are dancing, like, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good thing. And the question is, like, what does that come from? Like, wh what produces that? In this series that we're doing in the Songs of Advent, we're kind of dealing with that question, like, where on earth does the joy come from? Because these people's lives that we're talking about from normal material or worldly standards are not good lives. These people are not—they're not—these well, are all poor people. All of them, right? Mary especially. She's from this town, hill town from the middle of nowhere. It's a little backwards. She's probably profoundly uneducated. Um, and there's no reason to believe that there's anything special about her other than that God regards her as special, right? I mean, the, the Bible says in Isaiah that God intentionally set it up about Jesus that there was nothing particularly special about him to look at him. And yet everything was special about him in reality. And Mary was probably in some ways kind of similar. To get a sense about what Mary, what God wants to teach us through Mary in this passage, one of the things that we need to recognize is that um, there's a lot of ways we tend to think the world works that is not the way the world works. Um, the, what's, what economists call first stage thinking, thinking like problem, oh, this must be the solution. That's almost everybody goes through their life, but there's so many things in life that are kind of paradoxical. They just don't work the way they think they do. Here's a, let me give you a couple of psych examples. One is that self-help mantras do harm, they don't do good. Right? So like all through like the 80s and 90s and even now, you can buy like self-help books and self-help books are like, you know, you, if you like visualize what you want to accomplish and tell yourself that it's going to go great, like it'll go great, right? Well, here's the problem. If you're saying to yourself, I'm smart enough, I'm smart enough, I'm smart enough, it turns out you're dumb, but you're actually smart enough to know that when you say you're smart enough, you're lying to yourself. And what it really is saying is you're saying it because you don't believe you're smart enough. So every time you say to yourself inside, I'm smart enough, what you really believe inside is you're not smart enough. And while you go, I'm smart enough, I'm smart enough, I'm smart enough, you're actually smart enough to know that what you're saying is, I don't think I'm smart enough, I don't think I'm smart enough, I don't think I'm smart enough. And it turns out that self-help mantras do more harm than good. And once you think about it for a minute, it's a little bit paradoxical, but it makes perfect sense. Right? Or people being taught by their preferred learning style. Like, there's this big thing in education ever since probably the middle of the 90s that, like, there's all these different educational, like, learning styles. And if, you, like, you teach people in their learning style, whether it's auditory or by drawing graphs or singing or moving around, like, they'll learn a lot more. And a bunch of researchers have been like, 
that's really not true. And it turns out the reason, because at first you'd be like, well, of course it's true. Why wouldn't it be true? Why wouldn't it be really helpful to teach people in their learning style? Here's why. Because what researchers found out is that most information, actually because of the nature of the information of itself, prefers a learning. Let me give you an example that'll be really obvious. What if you had a math teacher and you were in a class of people who all learned best auditorily by hearing, and so he didn't write the math on the board? It's unnecessary. You learn by hearing, right? Well, no, math, you can't hardly learn math without writing it down, right? So there's a lot of things that are kind of like that. And it turns out, if you start with the information, and then what best fits the information, and then you kind of improv the learning style, that actually works the best. Once you think, at first, it sounds crazy. You think about it, it works, right? Or that bottling up your anger is is bad for you. Okay, turns out bottling up your anger is not bad for you. Bottling up your anger is great for you. Here's why. Because when you bottle up your anger, that is, you don't like dump it out on everybody else, you're more likely to just forget about it, and that's what you need to do with anger. You need to forgive, and you need to forget about it. Because the worst thing you can do with anger is perseverate on it. Whether you're launching it out at somebody else, or whether you're perseverating on it inside of you, that's the problem. Now, if you call that bottling up your anger, then bottling up your anger is bad, yes. But if bottling up your anger just means you, you just shut up about it, and you forget about it, and yeah, it upset you, but, but you don't talk to yourself in the shower about how you tell that person off, right? Then it kind of, it doesn't cook any hotter, and it kind of goes away over time, and it's much better if you just forgive them and forget about it. Bottling up your anger is what you are supposed to do, and it's actually much better for you than perseverating and venting it and for everybody else. In fact, there's tons of stuff in the world that are like that. You would think it would be one way, but it's not that way. And one of the things that people tend to believe in our, in our culture is, is that happy people have high self-esteem and are personally assertive. Well, high, high self-esteem can mean like 19 different things, and being assertive can mean like 19 different things. You can be assertive in ways that are entirely self-important and narcissistic, and you can be assertive in ways that are virtuous and not self-interested. And you can have high self-esteem that's based in something that is of real worth, that doesn't raise you up against ab- above everybody else and make you feel superior. Or you can have self-esteem in ways that are completely false, not at all connected with reality, and that make you essentially a narcissist. It de- all depends on what kind of esteem you esteem yourself with and what kind of assertiveness we're even talking about. In fact, the paradoxical truth about joy— that Mary teaches us here, and that is universally true under Christ for all humans, is, is that. The exuberant joy, real joy, is found, and it is—it's paradoxical to the way we look at the world. Exuberant joy is found in humility. Exuberant joy is found in humility. Now, there's, there's two ways we can look at that in this passage. Exuberant praise is found in, is, is found in humility, and there's two, two reasons we can look. One is, is that, um, is that God favors the humble, and the other is that the humble favor God. What I mean by that is this, God favors the humble in that he looks to the humble. All right, Isaiah 66 says, um, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool, right? Where's the place you'll build for me? And then he says, this is the person to whom I will look. So he doesn't want a temple. He wants a person to indwell. This is the one to whom I will look. He says, The one who is humble in heart and who trembles at my word. Right? 
He's looking for humility. And notice that he puts the fear of God, or trembles at my word, together with humility. Those two are interchangeable and synonymous, because when you get to Mary's song, she uses them interchangeably and synonymously as well. So let's look at the first one. God favors the humble. Now, when Gabriel first shows up to talk to Mary, he says, it says, the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. That's a pretty good greeting, right? Greeting you who are— favored, the Lord is with you. And the a question you could very easily ask is, why? Why is Mary highly favored? She's not a princess. They're not going to make a Disney movie out of her, probably, but who knows? Um, right? Is it just sheer election that all the women on planet Earth were all on a divine dartboard, and God is like, oh, look, I'm in charge, so I'm just going to throw a dart— Whoever it hits, that's who it's going to be. Or did God very intentionally, on a very important criteria, narrow down the group of women on earth through which he would fulfill his prophecy? And he was already kind of narrowed down because he could only use a descendant of David, which was already a fairly narrow group of people. Well, what we know is, is that, yeah, he does. He always does. The one to whom he will look is always the one who is humble at heart, and who trembles at his name. In fact, one distinction that, is, that might be helpful is a distinction between state and estate, right? Our estate is basically like where you are, like the state that you're in. So you're like water, right? You got water. It can be in three different states, right? Or in a state, like we think of like a place, but an estate is like a situation. So your state is like, that's you. That's what's going on in you. Your estate is your, your situation, and you see, Mary was humble in both, right? In the NIV, it actually uses the word state, but the older versions that actually come from the British translations, because when the British people controlled English, they used to like words that distinguished between things. It was a much more precise language when they were in charge. And so they distinguished between a state and state. And so in the ESV, which comes from those translations, it says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, right? Because Mary was a nobody. She knew that. And she wasn't saying that he, in this verse, he's looking at my humble heart and he's picked me. She's saying, I'm a nobody and he picked me. That's amazing, right? But she also knows why she's highly favored. It's not a mystery to her. She's, she's probably in wonder that of whatever humble women there were in the line of David, that God picked her and not another one. But she knows why God looks to a human being, why his favor is poured out specifically to that person in choosing them for a particular task. The people he chooses for particular tasks that belong to him are people who fear him, who are humble, who believe, who trust, who aren't incredibly self-important. And she knows this because she knows from the Bible and from how God has treated all humans throughout all of history that God actively opposes people who are in the state of pride. Now, if you're of high estate, estate and state tend towards each other. If you're humble of estate, then your life kind of makes—if if somebody tells you, look, you're going to be—you have to rely on God. Well, people in a humble estate have to rely on everybody. They're always in a state of reliance. The idea that God would do something where you would have to rely on him, that's not weird, right? But if you're a self-made person and you think that you do everything, that you initiate everything in your life and you take care of business, and then I say, no, to belong to God, you have to rely on him, that's not the way you normally roll. But you see, Mary says, God has scattered those who are proud. And then she adds that terrifying prepositional phrase. 
He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Not just in their behavior, not just in their loudmouthness. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. And God is act- after actual, real humility. The most famous verse probably for this is Proverbs 3, 34. The older translations used to say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Um, the, mo- the newer translations from the last decade went back to the more literal translation, which is, he scoffs at proud scoffers. Meaning that God, the way God deals with pride is he gives the proud back the attitude they're giving him. Because their attitude towards him is insane— but the attitude they're giving him is actually the attitude they deserve from him. So he gives them back the right attitude they deserve from him in response to the insane attitude of pride they have for him, right? Because when we're full of pride, what do we think we are? Right? We think we're God's little g. Right? We think we don't have to listen to God. We think that like the creator who is forever blessed, amen, um, really should do things our ways. Whenever you get mad at God, just think about what that means. Right? And so we're like, hey, it should be this way, and I want my life like this, and Jesus, I've done stuff for you, so you should do stuff for me, and if you're, if you're our heavenly father, then you should be spoiling me like I think fathers should spoil their children, and so on. That kind of scoffing attitude that is crazy for a little created human who isn't even a good person to give towards God is actually exactly the attitude we deserve from God. And so Proverbs says, the great terror of pride is that the attitude that God doesn't deserve from you, that you're giving him in your pride, the scoffing, the mocking, the the pride— is actually the right attitude he has towards you. And when you turn to him in pride, he turns to you with that attitude you're giving him. Except for him, it isn't pride. For him, it's just dignity. And that verse is not lost on the New Testament authors. They quote it in 1 Peter 5 and James 4. And then Mary says, says this in the second in the verse right after this one. He, that is God, has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. You see how she uses those who fear him, and he's lifted up the humble. She uses those interchangeably, just like God uses them interchangeably in Isaiah 66. Right? How do you—so what we should realize from this is we need to find whatever our estate, whether you consider yourself of poor estate or rich estate, whether you're of educated estate or uneducated estate, whatever estate, healthy— unhealthy, whatever estate you think you find yourself in, what all of us have to find if we want to be within the flow of joy, real exuberant joy, we have to find the state of humility, right? So if we know God favors the humble and that state of blessedness that Elizabeth talks about that Mary experiences comes from God favoring the humble, how do we how do we become the humble who favor God? Now, when I say God favors the humble, I mean those are the ones to whom he will look, as it says in Isaiah 66. When I say we should favor, the humble favor God, what I'm saying is, is that the humble take, take their pleasure in God. They orient themselves towards God. They put themselves under God. They trust in him. The humble favor God over themselves, over their own pride, right? Actually, giving ourselves a humility 
actually it takes more steps than sometimes we think. Sometimes we think humility is just being like, okay, God is big, I am small. It's much more than that, right? It's, yes, we give credit to God for everything that he should be taking credit for, which is most things. Secondly, we accept that it demotes us from our state of pride. But in addition to that, we have to believe God in such a way that we can stop being mad about the demotion and that he is God and that we aren't and allow that to go to the point where we actually enjoy it. That's a lot harder, right? It's one thing to like, you know, be a parent and you've got two kids that are fighting and you like pull up on them. Hey, what's going on here? And they're like, well, they did this. And and you're like, look, you're wrong. You need to back off. You need to apologize. Now a kid can be like, oh, okay, you're right. I'm wrong. I apologize, right? They They can accept the demotion and they can admit that I'm right. And they can even believe it and still be mad about it. That's not humility. Humility is embracing it, not being mad about the fact that God is God and we aren't. Not being mad about the fact that we are going to be recipients of mercy our whole lives. And actually coming to enjoy it. If you look at Mary, her systematic theology is a lot better than most of us, especially how we live. She sees both of these things. She sees that she— One has to admit that God is God and then also get to the point where she personally enjoys it. That's what she says in the first verse, right? She says, my soul glorifies the Lord. That is, in my soul, in my inner psychology, my thinking, my feeling, my being, my will, I point myself towards God and I admit He is glorious. He is above everything. He is great. He is better than I had imagined and I'm worse than I feared. Right? I, I glorify God. I admit his glory. And, but then also, she's not mad about that. It's not just a duty. When that comes to home to rooster, she says, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So well, how do we know Mary absolutely knows that what, where she is is she's a recipient of mercy? Because she says that God is her Savior, right? Her Savior. If, you're, if you get saved, you got rescued, you're not the big deal. You're the thing that got saved, right? The Savior is the one who's the big deal. And she says that that makes her, the fact that God has stepped in and done something, that makes her rejoice. You see, that's the state of humility. And when you read through Mary's song, Mary's song isn't really primarily about her. It's about how she's responding with joy to everything that that God has done. The, The song is actually full of he has, right? He has been mindful of me. In my humble state, he has done great things for me. His mercy extends to those who fear him. He has performed mighty deeds. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down rulers. He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent away the rich empty. He has helped Israel. He has remembered to be merciful. He has kept his word to Abraham. He has done all these things. And so I am happy about it. None of these things Mary did you and I aren't going to be any more impressive than Mary if we were able to get to a state of humility in Christ through faith where we could sing a sufficiently humble song, it would sound a lot like that. And it would, it would not sound, there would be no, and I have, and I have, and I have. And the dirty little secret here is that um, real joy and, and enjoyment is found more in appreciation than in achievement. And that's—there's a lie in there that we have believed very deeply, that 
um, that joy and, and pleasure and taking pleasure in yourself is found more than almost anything in achieving something, right? And it's not. And you're like, well, Nick, I have had a lot of achievements, and those have been some of my greatest enjoyments. Great, but wait just a second. What did you so appreciate about it, right? And the thing is, the thing that you appreciated about it is there are these components to what happened that you think are great in, in themselves, right? So like an achievement really pushed you and you wanted to test yourself and you wanted to see what you were capable of. Well, what determined what you were capable of? Were you in control of that? Or were, was that revealed in what you did? So what are you being glad about? You're still enjoying a gift that was revealed through the act of pushing yourself to seek to achieve. The thing that you achieved, if it's not blameworthy, then it's praiseworthy. The thing itself, even if somebody else achieved it, would be worth, would be worth celebrating, right? Why do we cheer for sports teams? We don't play. Do, do you notice this? Do you know what my Packer stats are? It's all zeros. No tackles, no catches, no touchdowns. I didn't even rush the quarterback. I mean, one time I got arrested. That was like after the game. But like, Generally speaking, right, we do nothing, but yet we still cheer as though like somehow we're connected to it. We cheer just because we enjoy the thing and we take enjoyment in it. And in the state of humility, you can equally take enjoyment in your achievements and in the achievements of everybody else's, everybody else, and the achievements of God in the achievements of everyone else. And so everything that you do that's worth doing you can take pleasure in doing, and you can take pleasure in the fact that you did it, not because you achieved it, because, but because the thing is an achievement and is worth enjoying. But it also means that your heart is equally free to enjoy every other thing worth enjoying, whether it's an achievement or not. And most things worth enjoying in the world aren't achievements. If somebody else cares about you, it's not an achievement. It's just to be enjoyed. If you can buy fresh fruit, that's not an achievement. For you, that's just something you get to enjoy. If you like snow, and you're like, look, it's snowing. You didn't achieve snow. No man can earn a sunset, as St. Francis said. You just enjoy it. And you see, in the state of humility, when Jesus brings you there, and you see that your soul glorifies not in yourself, but in him, and your spirit can rejoice in God your Savior. He'll bring you to a place that in salvation and in creation and in all of life, everything that's before you, whether it's your own achievement or whether it's someone else's or whether it's just something to be enjoyed, you can just enter in in full enjoyment of it because it's a gift of God. And it's just there to be embraced and enjoyed. And when your self-importance is taken out of the way, the emotional dullness that comes with putting yourself first no longer wipes the color away from the sunset. It no longer sucks the joy out of everything that can be enjoyed. When things are just themselves, they become themselves. And because of that, in killing our pride, Jesus is able to give us joy. Now, one of the reasons—there's there's two main reasons why human beings tend to be terrified of seeking humility with all their heart. The greatest pursuit of your life in Jesus is having faith in him in such a way that evermore you see Jesus more as Jesus and you more as you as you really are. Whenever you do that, you will see yourself as increasingly valuable before God, 
and yet increasingly laughable as a creature worth bragging about. It's a wonderful place to be brought to. And so the greatest, your greatest ally always is humility, and your greatest enemy is always pride. Pride not only damns you from the inside out, but it sucks all the savor out of everything worth enjoying in life. It is the worm in every apple. And so, but when we look to take that walk with Jesus, there's two things that are terrifying. One is that humility diminishes us in our own eyes, and that humility humility obligates us in a way that's terrifying. So if God diminishes us in our own eyes, that's actually a gift, right? I know it feels like if God is, is all in all, that it's like standing in a field when the fog rolls in, and it just covers everything, and you just kind of lose yourself in the mist. But it's, it's not like that. When God overshadows you, the thing that overshadows you is much more interesting than the thing it's overshadowing, Right? The thing that casts a shadow can be something that's amazing. And if you look at this passage, the most incredible thing that happened happened when God overshadowed somebody, right? The angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, right? This Holy, the Spirit of God will overshadow you and you will conceive. Like, it's actually in the overshadowing that Mary gets all of her dignity. Now, I realize that is a metaphorical connection with application to us. But if we read the rest of the New Testament carefully, that metaphorical application actually works literally for us. The more God overshadows you, the more he will, excuse the metaphor, impregnate your life with some growing meaning, some great significance, some purpose that may not change your estate at all. I mean, look at Mary. Did she get rich? Mary didn't get rich. She got pain. But it does say that as she went through her life being the mother of Jesus, it said that she saw things happen and she treasured them in her heart. That's what it says. She saw things she never dreamed she would see. And there's stuff that passes right over our eyes when we read the Bible. So for example, her husband probably died fairly young. He's, he's clearly dead by the time Jesus is crucified. It, so her marriage was less than 30 years, probably considerably, because when Jesus is crucified, he tells John, the youngest of the apostles, to take care of her. Nothing else is said about that. How many years did John, who came, became the great-grandfather for the first century church, how many years did John take care of Mary? What did they do? What was the living arrangement? What work did John do? How did he care for her? Did, did Mary set him up with his wife? Like what? We have no idea what happened between those two right? She met incredible people, and yet she probably didn't make a dime. But Luke tells us she treasured what God did in her life because of its spiritual significance. It incredibly overshadowed all the money she could have ever made or ever even hoped for or even envied in someone else. The diminishing that comes from humility is incredibly freeing, And the second thing is, is that humility obligates us. There's this great—I love this reaction. The angel went to Mary and said to her, Greetings to you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. What's Mary's reaction? Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Do you ever wonder about that? 
Most people just go, well, there was an angel, like she was terrified. That's not what it says. Somebody came up to me last week and was like, you know, you're kind of hard on Zachariah. You know, when an angel shows up, like, you know, who knows what you're going to say? Yeah, okay. When an angel shows up, it kind of puts you a little bit— it, it, it throws you a little bit, but what you say is still coming out of you. It's kind of like—it's the same reason my wife doesn't let me drink two alcoholic beverages or more wherever we go socially, right? Because I, one just shows people I'm not uptight or something, um, but she's like, Nick, you already say too much. <laughs> right? She loves me, right? <laughs> what comes out of— these folks when the angel shows up is what's really in there. And when, when this, when Gabriel says to her, you are highly favored, God is with you. She's like, oh no. Oh no. That's her first reaction because here's what she knows. She knows the Bible, right? She's, she's probably not educated, but she went to synagogue every week with her family. And she went and she heard about Moses, right? Guess what you get to do? You get—the Lord is with you. You get to lead a bunch of complaining people through the desert for 40 years and not actually get to the final place you're all going. Right? Like, she'd heard the stories. She'd heard the stories of all the people God was with. Jeremiah. Right? Nobody's going to listen to you. The Holy Spirit is with you. Preach the gospel. No one will listen to you. Thank you, Jesus. Isaiah, hear all these prophecies. They're going to saw you in half. Oh, it's heartwarming, isn't it? The Lord is—you are highly favored. The Lord is with you, right? You see, Mary—see, Mary knew. She knew that when the Lord is with you, it does not mean yachts. She, she knew that. And she's, she heard that. She's like, oh, I know where this is going, except clearly she did it. <laughs> It's true, like Keller says, the God who's done everything for us could ask anything of us. And you know that. You know when you get out of the realm of, I've done these things for God, he kind of owes me this stuff. And you like, when you actually totally let go of that, because you realize you've done nothing for God. He's done everything for you. There is no manage, relationship that you can manage here. It's just a relationship of love and mercy that you can receive. That's all there is to it. You realize, you will know implicitly that the God who has done everything for you could ask anything of you. And the proper response, not the response you have to have, but the response that, is, that, it, that ought to be normal from a heart that's firing right would be anything. Anything. You know that. Deep down you know that. And that's why humility is terrifying. Because you know if you allow yourself to get in that place— that the God who speaks and shows himself could speak and show what he wants to do in your life. And the God who's done everything for you could ask anything of you. And that is terrifying. And so how do you, how do you get, how do you get, your, get in a place, or how do you approach this, right? We don't want this, right? The idea that the exuberant joy we're meant to experience paradoxically comes through humility, that God favors the humble, and that the humble favor God, and that, that's what faith looks like, and that's how it works, and that's what it means to believe. How do you, how do you approach that, even? Especially if God is bringing that down to the level of our inmost thoughts, right? And the passage tells us, right? It says, Gabriel says to Mary, you'll be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, and he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and then this verse, that maybe not won't make sense to you unless you know something about the Old Testament. 
but we'll get that in a second. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, the angel had just said that the child would be called the son of God because Mary would conceive him without a man, right? And yet, his father would be David. Get that? There's no human father, but his father would be David. Because both Mary and Joseph are in the line of David, the line of kings. But long ago, hundreds of years before this, the line of kings had failed. But there was a promise kind of buried in a place of the Bible that you wouldn't read unless you actually read the Old Testament. And it's at, towards, towards the end of David's reign as king. David's the second king of Israel. And he's like the great king of Israel. He's the one that everybody looks to as like the golden age. He was the one, the greatest king, right? And there's this place where at the end, near the, nearing the end of his reign, he's, he's won all the battles. He's, he's put all the enemies kind of at bay. The nation is finally safe. He's raised enough money. He says, I want to finally build a temple, a house for God right? That's what he wanted to be. He didn't want his achievement to be like killing people. He wanted his achievement to be that he brought peace, and then he built a temple, a house for God, for people to come and worship him. Because David's heart had always been worship, not war. War was the necessity, so all the worshipers weren't dead or slaves, right? And so he, he comes to Nathan, and he goes, I want to build this temple. And Nathan said, awesome. And then God speaks to Nathan. He's like, no, no, the man who I used to shed the blood necessary to create peace will not be the one who builds my temple. I want those separated in people's minds. And so his son is going to build a temple, not him. He can raise the money, but he's not building a temple. But you go back and you tell him, you thought you were going to give me a gift. I'm going to give you a gift. And this is the gift that God gives to David in his line. He says, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, it's a little bit of a confusing passage because there's three hymns in that passage. There is the hymn of the literal immediate descendant after David, which is going to be Solomon. There is the hymn who is Solomon's descendant in this line that is him, David's line, which is the kings that got flogged by God with the, with the floggings of men. That is, when all these kings disobeyed God and did not trust and follow him in humility, he brought in other human groups to fight and punish them. Those weren't Solomon. Solomon had peace his whole lifetime. So when, when he says, I will flog him, that's already not literally Solomon. And then the line of kings would ultimately fail, but the line of David wouldn't fail. And ultimately he would raise up a final king who would be a second David. And he says, I will never take away my love from your line, from him, like I took it away from Saul. But that brings up a really interesting question. Why? Why is all through the Old Testament does he say, because of, for the sake of my servant David, I will do this? And that's it. He's like the only one he says that about. What's the big difference between Saul and David? Why did he take his love away from Saul? I mean, we talk about God's unconditional love, right? That's really imprecise. I don't ever say that, but we say that kind of stuff all the time because we want people to know how deep God's love is for people, right? Why does he take his love away from Saul? He literally says he does. You see, Saul, I mean, Saul was like the— Who's the quarterback for the, for the Steelers? Ben Roethlisberger? 
He's like the Ben Roethlisberger of like ancient Israel. He's like tall, handsome, strong, ready to roll, and all of the affairs of the world, super brave. But when it came to the affairs of the Spirit, he was a coward. And he was willing to manipulate the things of God in order to make the things in the world work right, to cling to being king, right? But David wasn't like that. He's totally different. When God finally wanted to replace Saul, he sent Samuel the prophet to this guy named Jesse's house to anoint a new king. And Jesse had a bunch of sons. And so he gets there, and the biggest son comes in, and he looks just like Saul, right? He's tall, handsome, muscular. He's ready to roll. Like, he's got an eight-pack. Like, I mean, and he's hairy. I mean, he just looks like a king, you know? And Saul gets up. He's like, this has got to be the guy. And, and God speaks to him. He's like, he's not. This isn't the guy. And, and then all these other sons come in, and they're all the same. They're all these big, strong, muscular, good-looking, intelligent guys. And every once, Samuel goes like, oh, it's that one. Oh, it's that one. Oh, it's that one. And, and God says, no. And then there's this really famous passage where God says, you, Samuel, people like you, right? Samuel is the most spiritual man in all Israel. No, there's no question that Samuel is the most spiritual man in all Israel. He's one of only two or three people in the whole Testament, nothing negative is said about, and that is called blameless, right? He's like the most godly guy. And God says to him, people like you, Samuel, men, they look at the outside, but not me. I look at the heart. And so they get to the last brother, and, the, and none of them get accepted. And, and Samuel says, is there anybody else? And they're like, oh yeah, well, we got the baby, you know, like the, out in the field watching sheep. And they're like, oh. He's like, well, get him. He's probably the one. And they're like, what? So they go and they get David. And like David comes in like smelling like a sheep with lice, you know. And he's got his little like, his little like lyre under his arm. He's like the music, he's like the musical one, you know. And he's like, he looks, he's handsome like a 12-year-old is handsome, you know. And you're like, what the? the heck? And God goes, that's the one I want, right? And he picks David. This like songwriting, sheep-leading guy, right? But there was something in his heart. Humility. He wasn't too good to lead sheep around, and so he wasn't too good to lead God's complaining sheep-like people. And he had to go fight wars. And so God needed somebody who had a heart of worship and hated to fight to go fight his wars. And he needed somebody who would be courageous enough to fight impossible odds. Right? And so there's this time where, like, David, like, He's sent to the front lines. The David and Goliath story, remember this? He's sent to the front lines, and he's like got bread and cheese. It's like he shows up from Wisconsin, right, to the fighting lines of Israel. And there's this guy, this like seven foot, eight foot guy. He's like, he's like yelling at Israel, and he's like, you know, have one person come out from him. It's like 3,000 people. Not one person go out and fight him. And, and he's like, shoot, we could go kill that guy. And you know what his brothers say to him? They basically say, who do you think you are? Right? Why? Because their hearts are eaten up with pride. This was about them. It was about that David was, like, judging them. Why are you judging us? Like, Goliath's big, right? And Saul's supposed to go fight him, right? And every single person in the entire line of Israel is thinking about themselves fighting Goliath. 
And because they're so eat up with pride about themselves as a warrior and him, their pride fails them in courage. The only person who has enough courage to go fight the guy is the one humble enough to know that God is going to fight him. David goes, he's already dead. <laughs> he's defied the armies of the living God. He's already dead. Just whichever one of us can run down the hill fast enough to kill him. And so he goes out there with a sling and he like hits him in the forehead, cuts his head off with his own sword, right? The sword is probably taller than David when he did it. It's like this huge two-handed sword, right? There's a great Renaissance painting of him like standing with his fun on Goliath's body holding his severed head and he's holding the sword and it's like a little bit taller than him. It's probably accurate, that part of the painting. But you see what created that level of courage? It was his humility. Our, our view of virtue is so screwed up that we don't see that. Humil humility creates courage. Humility creates joy. Because it's God that creates those things. And humility opens us to God and God's truths and what he teaches and what he's done. And when we receive, when we're in a position of receiving from him, we are empowered by him in ways we never thought possible. And not just in courage and what we have to do, but in joy in what we experience. If you, if you want to experience joy the way you're meant to, it is paradoxical. You're going to have to think a little bit more deeply than we often do. And you're not going to experience it by just sort of like pumping gaseous material into your self-esteem and by sort of like deciding you're going to fight for yourself. Exuberant joy, paradoxically, flows from humility. Joy flows from humility. God has set faith up that way. He set salvation up that way. And that's why it's good news for everybody. That's why it can be good news for the poor. And the only way you and I can ever accept that is not just when, like Mary, we see God as mighty— because he is mighty. He's done many mighty things. The only time we can really be, we can overcome our fear of being diminished and being obligated so that we can really give God his true worth and we can not be mad about it, but we can actually enjoy it, is when we see Jesus as the second David. When we see God raising up a king even more humble than David, who is infinitely divine. When you see the Son of God coming to Mary, who is nobody— who couldn't be of more, a more humble estate. And to raise him up to be king through the most humble means possible, that is, through the cross. That's not much of a coronation. Right? And when you see that the one who, who has no outward need to be humble, when you see how the one who has become king is humble, it will change you. But it won't change you out of legalism. And it won't change you out of law. It will change you out of love. It will do something in you. And you have to let yourself feel it. And you have to open yourself to it. And you have to overcome the fear of being diminished and obligated. And you have to, and when that anger stirs up in you, they're like, no, I want to be in control of this. You've got to let that anger go. And you've got to let yourself receive it. And you've got to let yourself enjoy it. And that takes some courage. And it takes some moving forward, and it, it takes some humility. And it takes pursuing that humility through faith every day of our lives. But 
it turns out that real joy flows from humility. And you can't not want to experience the fullness of joy and enjoyment that God has created you for. Nor to bring it to the lives of others. So as we sing this last song, I hope you'll sing it with that in mind. Try to be like Mary. Try to give, in your soul, give glory to God and in your spirit, enjoy his gloriousness. And let that do something to you. And talk to him about it. And ask him to help you overcome whatever it is you're struggling with. Let's pray. God, as we sing, please, um, Holy Spirit, please come and do something in us. Help us, change us, teach us, and make us people that are profoundly courageous, able to enjoy all things, whether our own achievements or others or just your, the graces in the world. Help us to accept that we are going to be recipients of mercy our whole life. And help us to find our worth, our significance, and our enjoyment in a humble relationship of trust and faith in you. Receiving everything from Jesus and doing everything out of trusting Jesus. Pray in his name. Amen.